We're going to be talking for the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show about a very intriguing book and the intriguing story behind the man who has written it. His name is Christopher Rosso. And uh, the way his career as a best-selling author began is very much out of the ordinary. But uh, for those who have enjoyed his books, his Ben Porter series, uh, they are glad that this unlikely uh, story has come to pass. Uh, His latest book in this Ben Porter series is called Vital Deception. And uh, we're going to be talking with him about it and about uh, how he has found his way uh, into the world of authorship, uh, even though my understanding is he has kept his day job, at least by now, but uh, is so excited to be able to share his uh, writing, which began with uh, his book, False Assurances, and as I said, continues with his latest book called Vital Deception, a very, very tense and interesting thriller. Uh, Christopher Rosso, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be on the show with you, Greg. It's it's an honor and a pleasure. So thanks for having me. I'm glad to be uh, speaking with you. So first of all, tell us a little bit about your life apart from writing, Uh, what it is that you (laughs) sort of do essentially nine to five, Monday through Friday. And then we'll get to this interesting story of how you have found your way into the world of of novels. (laughs) Sure. Well, found my way sort of makes it feel like I've actually figured out where I'm going, which I have not, but um, <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. So I, I work in the design and construction business. That's still my day job. Uh, I work as a, as a designer and a project manager. I used to own a construction company, and, um, and way back when, when I got started, I was driving a pickup truck and, and banging nails and then going back to an office and you know, working on a computer and doing the billing and doing the drafting and doing the drawings and so forth and so on. And, and it actually was it was that business um, which taught me two things. First of all, it taught me how to to design and organize projects, and and you'd be surprised at the similarities between that career and that of an author. I was surprised by that. The similarities and the and the coincidences are really staggering. But it was good training, and who knew it would be good training? But um, so I ran a construction company until about 2018, and uh, and I closed the company in 2018, the construction side of the business, so I could focus more on quality of life and um, and to focus on the creative design side. And much to my surprise, that's when um, when I sort of picked up a novel that I had started writing back in 2017 and, and really dug into it and found myself really enjoying the writing process. Now I'm um, curious. So I'm curious. Worked. I'm curious what. At what point in your life had writing become uh, a, 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 a source of pleasure for you? I mean, for instance, as a, as a young person growing up in junior high or high school and beyond, I mean, were you writing and, and, and harboring thoughts of someday being a serious or professional writer? No, never. In fact, I was I was I always felt like I was a pretty good writer. Uh, I was a history major, so that taught me a lot about writing as well. And um, and my I had been complimented in <laughs> in many facets in sort of the construction business. Oh, your emails are very clear. Your proposals are very clear. So I knew I could write decently. But I loved reading. I was a voracious reader. I would I I remember. I was a teenager when I read, you know, The Hunt for Red October, Tom Clancy's, you know, incredible sort of groundbreaking techno thriller that really established its sort of the genre of, of kind of what I do now. And, um, and, I, and I loved the stories on the page. Um, and 
writing one never really seemed like a reality until one day at the construction office in 2017, I was, I was tired of paying bills and writing change orders and yada, yada, yada. So I actually started writing a story that I'd come up with that summer, earlier in that summer. I wrote, you know, I don't know, for an hour or so. And of course, I Googled, you know, how long is the average novel? And it turns out it's between 80 and 100,000 words. And I had written maybe 300. I said, whoa, this is a steep hill to climb. But it was, it, it, you know, it sort of cracked the seal. And that's where it all began. So uh, you apparently sat down and really wrote what amounted to a, a full-fledged book. Uh, which would, I assume, be your very uh, first novel. Um, once you, uh, which is uh, ultimately titled False Assurances, uh, when you were done with that novel, uh, what did you do with it? What did you, what did you pursue in terms of trying to get this novel out into the world? Well, that's where I got very, very lucky, in fact. Um, and and I, I, I definitely acknowledge that luck played a big part of this. Um, so I finished the writing, you know, for False Assurances. Back then it was just called Ben Porter. And we'll talk about my, my protagonist, as they call him. In the literary circles, I still refer to him as my main character. Uh, but uh, I finished the novel in, in early 2019. And, you know, I, again, I had written it because I had, I had the time, because I had closed the construction company, because I wanted to pursue this creativity, creative process and, and because I just sort of wanted to see where the story would go. And the first draft um, was really never meant for publication. It was sort of something that I wanted to do as a project, as, as you know, I have to finish this story. So I sent it to my father. My father and I, you know, love reading and, and share the same sort of um, affinity for the thriller genre. My father lives in Florida. I live in Connecticut. I emailed him the story. He read it. He calls me. He says, yeah, this is really good. And I said, yeah, you, can. you have to say that. You're my father. You can't say it's terrible. He said, no, 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 it's really good. Can I show it to a couple of my friends? And I said, sure, you know, thinking he's going to show it to, you know, a golfing buddy or, you know, somebody who lives down the street or whatever. Um, turns out he shows it to a guy named James Patterson, who, as you may know, as everybody knows, is one of the world's best-selling authors. I mean, what a what a break for me, but... James Patterson read it, and he really liked it, too. So he called me, and we had a very long discussion, and Patterson said, this is really good. You need to do some, some cleanup work, um, but let's propose it. Let's get it published. And so Patterson's agent uh, took it to New York, and we proposed it to all the big publishing companies in 2019, the summer of 2019, and lo and behold, every single one of them rejected it. So what started out as this sort of top of the world feeling, thinking that Jim Patterson is endorsing my book and we're going to be, you know, in bidding wars for publication and all this other stuff. Uh, by, the end of it, by the end of that summer, I was, you know, had a stack of rejection letters and, or emails, I guess they really were. Um, sort of took the wind out of it, but, um, but, I, but I persevered. And I actually rewrote the story that, that winter thinking, you know, wow, I got all this feedback from these editors in New York. They, they had... A few of them had just said, no, no, or it's a near miss, which are the four words that I hated. It's a near miss. You know, how close was it? Uh, but um, I rewrote it. I titled it False Assurances. I actually wrote a sequel at the same time, which was called Threat Bias, figuring that if I was going to self-publish these books, which is what my decision was, if I had two versus one, you know, I would look more credible. and Somebody might take a, more, a risk on me if, if I had two books instead of one. And, uh, and I had made the decision to self-publish um, both stories at once in 2020. Hmm. Do you have any theories about why these potential publishers did not 
quite share the enthusiasm that James Patterson had for your book? I mean, was it maybe a case of just really bad timing? Or, or, uh, or to what else can you point? I mean, a saturated market? There, there must be some reason for that stack of rejections, or is that just one of the vagaries of, of the, the world of publishing and the fact that uh, so many potential books uh, show up on their desks? Have you come to an answer about that yet? Well, I, I mean, I've got a lot of theories, yes, but of course I can't ever really know. But but really the issue is it, it is a very crowded marketplace. The thriller genre is, you know, it's rife with characters. Uh, and, and yet another character, I could see a publisher saying, yeah, you know, we've, we've got a stack of thrillers, you know, authors in our, in our, in our stable, on our, on our imprint. We don't need another one. That's probably part of it. But my, my character is much, much different than the regular, um, you know, spy hero. So, you know, I, I was surprised by that. I will say that the first, the draft that the, the publishers saw is very different than what's out there now. False Assurances is much, much better from the version that they saw. And I often wonder, you know, whether I had had the, the opportunity to, to, to rewrite it the way I did and then submit that, would it have been different? I don't know, maybe. Hmm. But it is a very, it's a, it's a tough business to crack into. I think, you know, one in 10,000 novels uh, that come out per year it actually makes it to publication. So the odds are definitely stacked against a new writer. Um, but it's, I think, it, you know, I think you know that it's a saturated market and, and it's very difficult for publishers to take risk on something that's as new and as different than, as, as Ben Porter. And, um, and what's fascinating to me is that Ben has really um, struck a chord, I think, with readers, and that's why it seems to be so successful, because it is different. And I think that that risk-averseness of the big publishing houses really, you know, hinders their ability to, to find creative and new outlets like me. Well, what is really also interesting about this story is not just uh, the amazing coincidence that your dad knows James Patterson, who saw the novel and liked it and uh, championed it to the best of his ability. By the way, I've had James Patterson on my program and uh, enjoyed the experience very, very much. He's 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 amazing. Uh, but at any rate... Sure, um, second that. <laughs> right. But it, even uh, having to go uh, the route of, of self-publishing your book, False Assurances, it nevertheless managed to become a bestseller. And that in and of itself is quite extraordinary. I mean, books get self-published all the time, but uh, I can't think of the last time that I heard of a self-published book uh, that became a bestseller. Uh, how did that happen? Well, that was, again, a stroke of luck and, and actually a stroke of James Patterson's um, involvement in the project was after the two books came out in, in May of 2020, you'll recall, this is sort of at the height of the COVID uncertainty, we, you know, no vaccines, you know, lockdowns you know, around the country, schools were still closed, uh, restaurants were closed. You know, it, was a, it was a pretty dark time. And, and many people said, don't release the book. Publishers were pulling release dates because of COVID. I, th I thought to myself, you know, I am independent. I can do it my way. And, and people need this kind of, you know, it's, it's light entertainment. It's positive entertainment. It's a good message. It's the right person for the right time. So I'm going to release it despite what everyone tells me. And I think because of that decision, because there was very little competition at the time, um, it was easier to get it in front of people. And one of the people it got in front of, thanks to Jim and one of his golfing buddies, a guy named Rush Limbaugh, uh, Rush Limbaugh talked about the books, got his hands on the books and talked about them on his radio show in May of 2020. And all of a sudden, 
I was the number one author on Amazon, on Apple Books, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today. It took off. Um, and without that boost, obviously, uh, it, it wouldn't have happened the way it did because that visibility was, was literally priceless. Uh, so, and, and it's not a political story either. It was Rush saying, you know, I, I couldn't put the book down. I stayed up until 1.30 in the morning. I loved it. Um, it just captivated him and then you know, his listeners, uh, which is a pretty strong uh, audience, uh, catapulted the book to the number one status. And then it kept going from there because once it's number one, it's easier for other people to find it. It was, it was really you know, lightning struck twice for me, and, uh, and I'm very grateful. We're speaking with Christopher Rosso, and we're talking now about uh, his most recent book, which is the fourth in his series devoted to his uh, protagonist, of Ben Porter, and uh, this latest book is called uh, Vital Deception. So uh, tell our listeners what makes uh, your your main character, uh, Ben Porter, uh, an undercover agent for the FBI, uh, a rather unlikely or uncommon hero in such a book. So that's really what this is all about. Ben Porter was, was my invention you know, back when I started writing, uh, because I was tired of reading these stories of sort of this unachievable level of perfection in the heroes, be they male, be they female. Um, they all had this, this, this ability to, you know, they could go for a five mile run before breakfast, never take break a sweat. They're perfectly composed. They're, they're great, you know, martial arts abilities. And they could, they could shoot a gun and they can, crack a computer code. I mean, they're just, you know, it, it just didn't seem real to me that these people exist. I'm sure they do, but, you know, that's not me. I wanted to read and write about somebody that I felt I could relate to. So that's where Ben comes from. Ben starts out in false assurances as an information management specialist for the FBI in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, an information management specialist is basically a data entry cube dweller type person. And Ben is tapped to, to look at a case. And, of course, because he's our hero, he, he cracks the case. And, but he does it in a way that is very unlike the, the, the stereotypical spy hero person. Uh, you know, ben does it with wits, with his intuition, with a sense of humor. He's got a little bit of anxiety. He's a little bit overweight. You know, he's not you know, very confident. But what he does have is this belief in himself that he can take on these tasks and, and fulfill it. And, and I feel like that's a real good, feel good story for, for all of us because there are heroes out there all over the world um, who don't have to be in an action movie uh, or don't have to be a sort of super spy like, the, like my, my other peers in this genre are writing. Ben just is an affable guy who you'd like to have a cup of coffee with or maybe a beer with or hang out with at a ball game. You know, he's, he's an everyman, and that everyman quality is really what uh, I think compels people to really enjoy Ben's story. Did you pattern him after uh, anybody? I mean, is he maybe a conflation of a couple of different people we might know? Uh, I guess maybe another way to uh, ask the question is uh, if Ben Porter were ever to uh, reach the screen, either in a television series or a film, uh, can you imagine uh, a particular actor playing him uh, in terms of how you have conceived him? Well, so he, he may actually reach the screen. So Spyglass Media optioned uh, the series, optioned the character, optioned false assurances. Spyglass is the company that did the screen reboot movie that came out earlier this year. It's a real Hollywood production company. They've got the option on it. They're working on a book-to-screen adaptation, and hopefully I hear more about that in the near future. 
And that question has come up, you know, who plays Ben Porter? And and the answer is, I don't know. I think Ben is going to be, could, should be played by somebody we've never seen before, uh, you know, an actor that makes their mark on the, on the, on the screen. Um, but the character himself is really not, I mean, there's a lot of me in Ben Porter, of course, because that's the way to write it authentically, but I am not, you know, a super spy and I don't do these, these crazy things that he gets away with. I, you know, I work my day job and I, I write as a side hustle, um, which I think actually Ben would find pretty, pretty compelling too. Um, but he's not based on anybody in particular. He's based on my imagination of, of somebody who, who looks like everybody else. And, and in fact, I never describe what Ben looks like in the stories. You, you, you know, we know he's slightly overweight, maybe somewhat stocky, but we don't know his skin color. We don't know his hair color. We don't know his eye color. We don't know, what, you know how he dresses. I never in four books have ever described him because I do want him to be truly that every man. And, and, and the reader uses their own imagination and fills in the blank as to what Ben looks like. Of course, there's a little bit of risk. If a movie does come out, they're going to say, no, 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 that's not my Ben, but, you know, that's okay. One thing that uh, is interesting is that one of the, one of the bad guys uh, in, in your book, Vital Deception, um, is uh, his name is J.J. Uh, Gannett, I think. Am I remembering the name correctly? Yeah. Yep. And and uh, when we first encounter him, as somebody is talking about him, uh, they are saying that his appearance uh, is what causes you to dismiss him as a suspect. But his appearance is literally the perfect cover. He's unassuming. He doesn't look threatening. He can pass invisibly through any crowd. And this is a, a kind of an interesting parallel to your protagonist Ben Porter who is also a fairly ordinary guy that uh, this antagonist J.J. Uh, Gannett has tremendous abilities and skills is a very very formidable dark force uh, in the book but just to look at him you'd never guess it uh, and again that flies in the face of so much of what we see and read in in the typical thriller where every significant character tends to be kind of larger than life. Yeah, and I think that's true with life as well. I think that there are, you know, the foes that we have to deal with, you know, either, you know, personally or professionally, you know, you, you can't tell them who they are from, you know, if you, if you saw somebody standing on a train platform, you don't know who's good, you don't know who's bad. Uh, you, you, you just don't know. And I think that's actually what makes this character a little bit more uh, threatening is that, he is basically invisible, and and you, you could be sitting right next to him, you know, on the train, uh, you know, at the airport, waiting for your flight, and you know, that sort of thing. Um, to have a to have a villain be invisible, I, I think is is scarier. But I also think it's realistic. I mean, unfortunately, you know, our world has gotten to the point where, um, and, and recent events prove this. You just don't know where the next threat is coming from. It's not obvious. Uh, and one of the things that you know, that Ben does is he keeps his eyes open. He keeps a healthy level of skepticism without being paranoid, and and he sort of examines all the things that happens around him. I, I wish we would all do that and sort of take a step back from making assumptions and say, mm, well, let me think about this in a more critical way. Uh, perhaps we'd be better off. I don't know. Hmm. We're speaking with uh, Christopher Rosso about his latest book. Uh, Vital Deception, book four in the Ben Porter series. Something else that's kind of distinctive about uh, your book is that two older women 
figure very, very prominently. And uh, I mean, I, I don't read this genre a ton. <laughs> I mostly read it only in connection with this program, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but in my f- admittedly limited exposure to this genre, this seems out of the ordinary. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think it's one of the things that makes this particular book especially interesting. Uh, the characters of Genevieve Sullivan and Hazel are going to share. Can you tell us more about them and the choice to place uh, two uh, somewhat older women uh, in such prominent places in your novel? It it, it wasn't so much of a choice as it felt just, it felt real to me. There, There are you know the the two the two women that we're we're talking about have uh, high ranking positions in the United States government. Um, they, which is true, happens all the time. Um, they they seem like the right characters at the right time, um, but really their gender has nothing to do with their characters. It you know they they could have been written as men, but you know I try to get a balance of you know males and females in the stories. These two felt better uh, in their characters the way they are written, but that doesn't. It, I'm not trying to make a statement with it. I'm just trying to write a story that that, that sort of puts a puts a broader focus on on everybody out there. Um, there are a lot of uh, very, I have a great deal of respect for for quite a few for a lot of women, of course, because um, they're not only my readers, but you know, I'm married to one. I've got a daughter. It, it, to me, it doesn't make a difference who what the gender would be and why. It just made more color fit in the story, and it just felt right to me. Mm-hmm. And I and I love that they're both powerful and, and may or may not be wicked. I can't, of course, say that because that would be a spoiler for the story. But you'd have to read it and uh, to find out whether their their intentions are good or their intentions are not so good. Right, and of course, we don't want to give too much away, but we should say that kind of the central crux of this thriller is the possibility, the very real possibility, of the director of the CIA being a compromised figure and, uh, in a sense, in cahoots with a a, a foreign power. And uh, it's really a terrifying prospect to think about, uh, about somebody being in that position of leadership, in that position of power, and, in a sense, misusing that power in ways that could uh, dramatically hurt our country. Uh, Do you remember... Anything about coming up with that central idea? Well, it, so each each one of the books does sort of ground itself in some sort of idea like that, where I try to take you know ripped from the headlines type ideas, where um, where I where I look at okay, I see something in the news and I think wow, this looks a little bit shady, and in this particular case, in Vital Deception, it was um, the assassination of a journalist in Saudi Arabia. I was sort of wondering how did that come to be, and who are the players, and why? You know, how does this happen? And so the story starts to explore that. It actually goes in a couple of different directions as well, um, you know, to keep it interesting, but also to keep it you know grounded in reality. But in previous books, have dealt with um, you know border security or autonomous vehicles or social media, um, you know, sort of in that order. And this one deals with actually a, a foreign intrigue, but also some medical intrigue as well within the hospital system. Um, they're all they're all true stories that could have happened. I mean, that's my goal is to write something. And I, and I say this in the, in the author's note that starts every novel. It's the exact same note in all four of them. It says, you know, this this story is far fetched. But it, but it, but it could have happened, and and to me that makes the whole premise 
that much scarier. And again, going back to what we talked about earlier is, okay, you know, don't be paranoid, but keep your eyes open and maybe question a little bit about what you see and what people's intentions really are. So is it possible that a high-ranking government official has ties to a foreign government? I mean, it, it has to be possible. It, it would be, it would be, I think, naive to think otherwise. Hmm. One matter that figures prominently in this book is the matter of poison, and uh, I think you really, really do. Uh, you do a very good job of kind of helping us understand how poison can be such a, a frightening and effective weapon in, in a lot of different settings and scenarios. And uh, first of all, I wonder to what extent you, you did some research, did some homework uh, in order to write intelligently and plausibly about uh, the nature of various poisons and how they work and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, how they are deployed. Well, I, I, you know, I did a lot. I did a lot of research, and it, 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 there's a fine line between writing an instruction manual on how to make something very bad happen and writing a novel where you want it to be entertaining and, and fictional and, and sort of make it plausible at the same time. I do not want to write a manual. I don't want to write to the point where somebody could say, "Oh yeah, vital deception." I, got, I was encouraged to you know use this poison on my you know enemy. That's not what I intend, but. That said, um, I have uh, I had two very very good medical advisors on this book. One of which I named in the in the, um, in the acknowledgement. The other one didn't want to be named. Um, but both are doctor. One is a doctor. One is a nurse. Uh, it, very very well qualified. And I tested the theories with both of them, and they read early manuscripts and and you know corrected me on some of my you know misassumptions or. Uh, on where I got actual sort of hospital procedures incorrect. So it was vetted, uh, as, as all the books are, by somebody who has experience in the business. I think that's part of the interest of my research, and I, and I love that part of you know, learning something new myself and then kind of sharing that with the readers that, that are going to pick, pick these books, because it is all plausible. And, you know, for example, the dosing amounts are correct and the names of the medicines are correct. I'm not making anything up. I do think that makes it a little scarier, but at the same time, I don't give you enough information to, I hope I don't, uh, to, to actually pull this off on your own. And there are certain omissions that are, if somebody really wanted to be critical, they say, you didn't tell us how to do this. And I say, yeah, that's intentional. Talk for a moment about poison itself, I mean, as, as a uh, tool, as an element in a thriller like Vital Deception. What, what drew you to it? What do you think? makes it uh, an effective facet of the story you've crafted here. So it's, it, it, this actually, this story actually started when I was researching my previous book, Subversive Addiction. Uh, I had come across a, um, a Russian group called Unit 29155, which is a real group. Uh, they, they are sort of a, a Russian uh, counterintelligence group, usually based in, in, in uh, focusing on sort of hacking and cyber work, uh, but got involved in poison. And I saw an instant where there was an allegation that uh, this group had poisoned one of their targets. And I thought that was fascinating because the target survived and actually was able to talk about their experiences uh, after being poisoned. And I used that as my real world um, research as to what would happen if one of my characters was exposed to this sort of, um, this sort of chemical. And 
it, it, it all really happened. I was fascinated by the, the outcomes, and then I tied it all together in this story. Um, so I, I get inspired from lots of different places. I, I read, like I said, I read voraciously, not just fiction. I read the news, too. And um, these stories are out there. And this one in particular said, wow, this could this could be the premise or, or at least the sort of the nugget that starts off a very interesting uh, fictional story. Hmm. At one point, uh, we learn of the possibility of the director of the CIA being uh, involved in the plot to assassinate uh, the king of Saudi Arabia. And uh, one of the things that apparently makes this especially scary is um, when you say, or the narrators of, of or I, I, actually it is, I think maybe your protagonist, Ben Porter, who says this, or somebody he's speaking to, who would be better at orchestrating this than the CIA? Uh, I mean, such a plot. I mean, if somebody at the top of the CIA were uh, inclined to make something like this happen. I wonder if you could just talk for a moment of, uh, about that, uh, about what it means when we create an agency like the CIA uh, to do undeniably important work uh, that serves our country, but but a, a, an agency that also could be misused for very, very dark purposes. I wonder what you find especially intriguing about that scenario. Well, I think I think that that scenario is is completely plausible. That you know, to to create this agency that could be used for 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 unintended purposes or purposes beyond its charter, I think that happens all the time. I think that's one of the the beauties and the strengths of the American form of government. But it's also one of the weaknesses because we create these these entities and and we create them in the best of intentions. Uh, but you know, loopholes can be found, and people can take uh, a charter and, and interpret it their own way. Um, I, I, honestly, I think this stuff happens all the time, uh, and it is—it's it, concerning, you know, because it, <laughs> who, who's in charge and who's got the oversight over it. Um, another one of my uh, favorite authors, a guy named Chris Hardy, wrote a book called Deep State, talking about, um, you know, is there sort of this this sort of hidden government uh, that actually runs things in Washington? It's plausible. It's absolutely plausible uh, that that this this is out there. We certainly hope it's not, and that's why a free press is so important. That's why being able to analyze these things constantly is so important. That free flow of information, you know, we again stay on our toes. But um, it does concern me. I think it one uh, you wonder, you know, who's really in charge, and um, and even if they're really in charge, who who's to say that somebody you know quote unquote under that person who's in charge can't go off and go rogue. I, I do think it happens, and it's, it's probably happened more than once. What leads you to say that? I mean, just your imagination? I mean, uh, when, you, when yeah. you say something like, that happens, it happens all the time. I mean, I'm just curious what prompts you to make a statement like that. Well, see, I can't prove it, that it, hey, but it's, so is it the absence of proof that makes it makes it more scary or not? You know, from the research I've done and the way these, these systems operate, and from the, as I delved into, for example, the operations of the FBI early on when I was writing the first and second books, uh, where I wanted it to be, you know, correct with the procedural methods of the FBI, I found all these ways to get around those procedures as a layperson, you know, as a guy who works a day job and I'm doing this on the side. If I can find that stuff, then somebody else can. 
and and I think while I can't prove that nefarious things have happened orchestrated by the United States government, uh, you know, and maybe they're well intended, and maybe they're supposed to happen because they are in the best interests of national security or that sort of thing. Um, we will never know as as the public, but the but the mechanisms I truly believe are there. That does not to say I'm some sort of conspiracy theorist and you know thinking that there is, you know, this shadow government out there. But it, it, it's plausible by as I delve through all these layers of government and who reports to who and how do I make my book accurate in terms of what the reporting structure is and and for example. Uh, there's a scene in, in Vital Deception where the Navy is tasked to, to do something. Who can task the Navy? And I made sure I got that right. And, and it, it, was, it was a pretty wide net that gets cast. So I just have to wonder. I can't prove it, but it makes me wonder. Hmm. About the matter of crafting a thriller, uh, just talk for a moment about the interesting challenge of what information to give and when. And and in and in what amounts in other words what do you want the reader to know when and it seems to me that uh, anybody who crafts books like this uh, is confronting that challenge I mean time and time again about uh, the nature of the information that they are sharing and and how best to share that information with the reader so I have this sort of witness test, if you will, and um, and my, my editor was the one, a guy named Ryan Steck, who's out in Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, who I've actually never met in person, just you know on phone calls and Zoom and so forth. Ryan is a terrific guy and has helped me with all four books. Um, Ryan gave me some great advice early on. He said, because we had talked about The Hunt for Red October, which I mentioned earlier, like Tom Clancy's first book, and he said the issue with, with, with The Hunt for Red October was at times it read like an instructional manual for how to drive a submarine. And I said, yeah, that's right. It gets very thick with the technical details. And Ryan's advice was, and this is my litmus test to, to answer your question was, I don't want to teach you how to drive the submarine. I just want you to feel like you're on the submarine. And there's a difference. So I want you to feel like you're in the action and I want you to feel like you've got all the information, but I don't want you to bog down in you know, that superfluous detail, because at the end of the day, you're doing, you're reading my story to entertain yourself. You're not reading it to learn how to, you know, quote unquote, drive the submarine. So that's the test that I use. I, you know, I'm sure I get it right. At sometimes I'm sure I'm not, I, 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 at times I don't do enough and sometimes I do too little. So uh, it, it's not a perfect test, but that's the theory that I look at and try to make it engaging for the reader. Because at the end of the day, again, it's entertainment. and I want you to have fun reading it. I want you to enjoy Ben's sense of humor and sort of irreverence, but also feel like you're in the midst of this whodunit plot. And when you put it down, you say, hmm, that was really interesting. I wonder if hmm. it could have happened. Uh, a last question. Uh, as we said, these four Ben Porter books uh, – are books that you have self-published, and they have been very, very well received. Uh, can you imagine a scenario in which uh, your next series of books uh, might be published by a, a pub, an outside publisher, so to speak? Or have you grown fond of this situation in which you are, I, I should think in many respects, your own boss? Uh, in a way that uh, an author who is working with uh, an outside publisher probably is not. I mean, is beholden to their input, at least to some extent. I mean, maybe not if you're James Patterson, but I think the typical author, uh, I think you know what I mean. It's, it is not yeah. the same situation. 
Uh, is that a scenario that you would welcome, or do you think uh, this is the niche in the publishing world that feels right to you? It, I, you know, I, I honestly I go back and forth on that. You know, I would love the exposure that a mainstream publisher could get me because they would, you know, my books are not on the table at you know Barnes and Noble or the local bookshop. They can be. You can order them through Barnes and Noble. You can order them through any independent bookstore. You can buy the book, but they are not on the table that you see when you walk in the door. So I'm missing sort of that component of the market, and and I would love to get that exposure. That said. Um, I love the freedom of what I do. And, and you said it, be your own boss. You know, I'm sitting here now in my rented office in Southport, Connecticut, that I subleased from another bigger company. I have one room. Uh, and from this one room, I have the tools to take on the behemoth publishing industry in New York City and beyond. New York City, by the way, is 50 miles away from where I am sitting. So I feel like that's a that's a very American entrepreneurial, you know, pull yourself up from the bootstraps kind of situation. And, and I, I gotta say, I'm intrigued by the challenge to see if I can actually take on these publishers and create my own mark and my own brand and keep going with the Ben Porter series. Cause there will be a book five. I'm working on that already. It feels really good to me to, to have that kind of, you know, David versus Goliath, uh, story to tell about myself. And I love the challenge of it all. Um, I also love the independence of not being edited by a committee. I can get away with, and I shouldn't say get away with, I can be more creative in, in ways that I describe my stories because I'm not answering to that committee of people that say, oh, you know, we haven't seen this done before. You should take this out. This is a little too risky. I can take those risks. And I do take them in, in, in Vital Deception. There's, there's a couple of se- sequences in that story where I was I was advised, hey, this is this, you're getting out there. This is this is very risky. A publisher won't let you do this, but I want to do it anyway because it keeps the series fresh. It keeps it entertaining. It keeps it innovative. Um, so I like that. Hmm. And and you know, if I can win at this game, uh, I'll feel pretty good about it. So that's my challenge. Vital Deception is the fourth in the Ben Porter series by Christopher Rosso. Christopher Rosso, thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. I enjoyed speaking with you, Anya. I enjoyed your book. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you very much. I appreciate being here.